This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can join us for new episodes every Thursday, so don't forget to subscribe. Now, this week we're exploring potted history at Stonehenge. That is to say, the role of eating and drinking vessels in prehistoric daily life. Where they've been found in the landscape, what they were made of, and how replicas of them made today are helping visitors get closer to the ancient past. Joining us now are two ancient pottery technology specialists, father and daughter Graham Taylor and Sarah Lord. Hi there, I'm the more ancient one. (laughs) Hi, uh, nice to be here. Sarah's the younger one. And Melanie Cousins joins us as well, who is interpretation manager at Stonehenge. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, let's start by discussing the physical evidence that these ancient builders and users of Stonehenge left behind. So what ancient pottery has been found at and near Stonehenge, Melanie? Well, the most common pottery that we find at and near Stonehenge and in connection to the builders of Stonehenge is a type called groovedware pottery. And these are typically quite elaborate, flat-bottomed pots, I believe in varying sizes, And quite often they are found alongside remains from feasting, so animal bones and things like that. So they're likely used in feasts and gatherings by the people who were building Stonehenge. Can you describe what they look like as well? Well, I'll actually let Graham, I think, describe in in better detail because he'll have far more experience. Um, But they are decorated all around the outside surface typically. But I I think I'll let Graham say more about that. Yeah, I mean, they're called groovedware, which sort of gives you a clue, although only about uh, sort of uh, 20% of them are actually grooved. They're decorated by often being incised, but also sometimes by having clay ridges and things applied to the surface. And some of them really quite elaborate. You know, when I make replicas of them, I often find it takes me longer to decorate the pot than it actually takes me to make the pot, because the decoration often covers the entire surface. I see. Okay, interesting. Melanie, what is then the oldest piece of pottery that's been found in the landscape at or near Stonehenge? Hmm, Well, I do believe we've got some pottery found in the landscape that actually predates Stonehenge, so as long ago as 6,000 years. But the oldest pottery found directly at Stonehenge is from around 5,000 years ago. So this was part of the first version of the monument, which at that time was a circular bank and a ditch. And there were pits or holes all the way around the circle holding cremated remains. And it was within one of those that a very small, I believe, decorated ceramic object was found. And again, Graham may be able to tell us more about that because we do have a replica of this item on display at Stonehenge. And Graham is the one who created it for us. Yeah, I made it back when the visitor centre was being created. I got a request, could I make the ceramic object, which uh, sent me off scuttling for my research material to find out what on earth it was. And it is it is basically, it's a clay disc with some decoration on the surface of it, but we don't really know what its function was. But yes, it was found in one of the, what are known as the Aubrey holes around the outside there. Did you have a fragment to work from then? Yeah, there's uh, there's about half of it left. I mean, the interesting thing for me about it is it's slightly lopsided and it has the look of something that's been very neatly made, laid down to dry. Then somebody's walked in and gone, 
oh, what's that? Picked it up and squeezed it slightly. And you can just imagine the sort of scenario of them having their hands slapped and told to put it back down again and leave it, you know. <laughs> All right, so perhaps an unwanted uh, half-finished version of something. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Mm, interesting. That's another story in itself, isn't it? It is. <laughs> so that's the oldest piece of pottery covered. What would be the latest? What's the youngest piece of pottery, Melanie? Oh, I'm not sure I could say for sure. I mean, we have pieces of pottery from the Roman period. So we know, obviously, that there are finds from that time period. I'm not sure what the absolute most recent piece is, though. I mean, I, again, I, I could kick in a little bit here. I mean, what we do see at Stonehenge is a sort of timeline of, of pottery in, in ancient Britain, because we were talking about the fact we go from the very earliest round bottom carinated bowl stuff that's coming in 6,000 years ago through the groovedware pottery, the, the flat bottom pottery, which, which comes in at about 5,000 years ago, just as Stonehenge is being built, then through to beaker pottery, which is coming into Britain at around about, uh, 4,400 years ago. And that's really as Stonehenge is sort of, I suppose, coming to the end of its main phase. But it carries on being used by people right the way through. So, you know, we do have Iron Age pottery for there. We do have Roman. And I suspect there's probably, you know, things like medieval and things, which are people going back and reusing that monument. They're still venerating the monument in some way. Hmm, interesting. Because I suppose we put Stonehenge in a in a category don't we in history which is prehistory and we sort of forget that time moves on and there are other cultures using the space well we're still sort of using it aren't we <laughs> yeah exactly what about the size of these objects that have been found over the centuries how intact are they when they come out of the ground well, I mean, I don't think there's been any, particularly if we're looking back at the grooved where the stuff that was Melanie was saying was, was used for feasting, it actually, in a way, at Durrington Walls, looks as if feast events might have occurred and the pots might have actually been deliberately broken at the end because they're found in quite dense deposits sometimes. So we don't have any intact whole pots, but we do have some where we've got most of the pieces, if you like, and they were probably being used as brewing vessels, storage vessels. There have been some huge ones, I think going up to around about 60, 70 centimetres tall. So they're sort of a barrel. They really hold quite a volume. But then we go right the way down to, as we said, the ceramic object, which is tiny. Fascinating. So anything from more than two feet tall to, to really small. It yeah, would yeah. fit in your palm. Some of the smaller objects would easily comfortably fit in your, the palm of your hand. So yeah, very small. And what are they made from, these archaeological finds? Clay? Yeah, well, yes. And, you know, there is clay in the Stonehenge landscape, though there was a brickworks not too far away from Stonehenge running through to the 19th century which was exploiting clay. But there's also been discoveries, I believe, of clay in sinkholes within the Salisbury Plain. Because, of course, the Salisbury Plain was glaciated, which, which means that anything prior to that geologically was stripped off. So, And it's mostly chalk, which is the landscape that lends itself usually to clay. But there are deposits, and they would have been digging suitable clays, creating pots from, the, from those clays. Okay, because that feeds into my next question, really, which was how they would have been made. So you're saying potentially they were made locally or? Certainly there were pots being made locally. What we know about the feasting events is that they seem to be happening, bringing people together from long distances. And that, some of that information comes from the bones found on the site. I mean, there have even been suggestions that some of the pigs 
which they were eating at Stonehenge under Durrington Walls, could possibly have spent their early years in Orkney. So the food's coming a long way. It's possible the pots are, but quite frankly, carrying huge pots over long distances would have been challenging, to say the least. Yes, and especially if they're, they've got material in them. Yeah. Yes, that would be um, potentially quite heavy to bring all the yes. way from Scotland. <laughs> yeah. Now, talking about the uh, Durrington Walls you've mentioned a few times, for people who don't know what Durrington Walls is, can you explain what that settlement was and where it is and the significance of it? I think that's probably a, possibly a Melanie question. And yes, <laughs> Melanie, can you I'll chip do my in best. there? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it, it was a settlement about two miles away from Stonehenge itself, which is why it's interpreted as possibly the place where people were living and feasting and gathering whilst they were building Stonehenge or even gathering during the seasons when they were using Stonehenge. And it is a very large area of land. I believe it might have been close to hundreds of evidence of hundreds of dwellings were found. And in fact, it is based on the archaeological remains that have been found about the houses at Durrington Walls and the other structures that we based our replica Neolithic houses on that can be seen at the visitor centre. And I understand that they could have been living there either for at least uh, winter or summer solstices. Is that right? Yeah, there's some, I mean, as Graham had sort of alluded to, there's some evidence that there was seasonal usage and that can be taken in some cases from the different animal remains and the things that were discovered there to imply that it was used for only part of the year or at different times. So going back to the pots that these people potentially living at Durrington Walls were using, is there a huge amount of evidence of decoration on them? Could you talk about how intricate the decoration is, if, if there is any, Graham? Yeah, well, the pots are hand-built. They're, they're, we predate in the wheel here by a long way, certainly in Britain. If you'd popped over to southern Iraq, you'd have found people already using the potter's wheel, but we have to wait for the Romans to get here for us to be using the potter's wheel. So the pots are hand-built. People who know me will know I don't like the term coil-built simply because it conjures that thing that you did at primary school of sticking little sausages of clay on top of one another. And actually, it's a much more robust process than that of, of building the pot up with with clay by hand. But yes, the, I mean, the decoration, as I say, it is often very elaborate, raised ridges, lots of sort of linear decoration, in some cases sort of grids of applied cordons of clay across the entire outside of the pot or repeated vertical ridges going right the way around the pot. In other cases, they're carving into it using, well, I mean, I often use bone or antler tools, which is what I suspect they were probably using, and carving the decoration into the surface. But it corresponds quite closely with things that were happening architecturally in the wider sort of Neolithic world at that time. If you look, for instance, at the sort of decorations on the tombs at Newgrange or the or the rock art in the in the landscape. When I talk about Newgrange, we're talking about Ireland now. The decorations on the pots correspond quite closely with what's going on there. And the pots themselves, flat-bottomed, grooveware pots, seem to originate, and as I mentioned Orkney before, seem to originate in Orkney. Probably because Orkney has lots and lots of big flat stones that you can build furniture in your house with. And once you've got flat surfaces, you need flat-bottomed pots. So flat-bottomed pots, elaborately decorated, with decorations that correspond with other things going in the landscape, 
one of the things this tells us is that people are moving around, people are communicating, people are linking ideas. And while we don't know what the patterns mean, they're connected to other places and other people in this, in this wider Neolithic world. The flat bottoms also suggest that, as you were saying, they're either these objects being laid upon stone or they're being laid upon wooden surfaces. Mm. So do you think there are potentially tables that have long since rotted away that would have existed? Well, if you go into the Neolithic house, uh, replica Neolithic houses at Stonehenge, they are based on houses found, at, I think, at Durrington Walls and at uh, Stonehenge Riverside. And they found post holes which implied a sort of shelving network almost directly opposite the door as you go into the house. And that corresponds almost exactly with the arrangement of houses at Scarabray on Orkney, where the same thing has been done with huge slabs of stone. So I think, yes, in the landscape of Salisbury Plain, where maybe there weren't so many nice, easy, flat stones available for making your furniture, people are using wood. Up on Orkney, they're using the stone that's available to them. But they're sticking with a house plan that has definite strong connections. So how were these objects made thousands of years ago? Because even from school, I seem to remember there being a a kiln in the artist's workshop uh, when we did art class, the kiln. But thousands of years ago, how does one make clay pots? Well, yeah, I said before this predated the wheel. It predates the kiln as well in Britain. But to make uh, clay into ceramic, you have to get it to a temperature above about 550 degrees centigrade. So the higher above that temperature you get, the more solid the pot is. Most of this pottery from this time is fired in the sort of range of about 700 to 800, which is the temperature you get in a bonfire, in in an open fire. And smaller pots, things that you would sort of use around the domestic hearth, could actually be fired in the hearth, in the hut. That would be fine. That would work. Bigger pots, like the ones we were talking about before, the huge grooveware pots, you would have to take them outside. You'd have to build quite a fire around them. And that's quite a risky business because if you heat clay too quickly, it explodes. The the steam within the pores of the clay will blow it apart. So you you have to very carefully build up the temperature. These were very skilled people. You know, we, we have this idea of, oh, they just bash out a pot and they stick it in a fire. No, no. These are people who really understood their materials and how they could use those materials and the processes they had to go through to achieve success. Is there a chance that any of the finds that have been discovered are actually blown up pots that failed or were they ones that were actually used and were successful? I've been looking for years for evidence of pots that have definitely blown apart. One of the key things is you get something called a spall, a wonderful word, a spall. It's a plate of clay that sort of gets blown off the side of the pot. And it's sort of the shape of a discus. It has a sharp edge and it's, it's almost lens shaped. And it's quite distinctive. It is is something that really only happens in the firing of the pot that you're making. And they are really rare. I think the reason is that, you know, when people are firing pots, they're probably doing it in the same place repeatedly. And you fire a pot, it blows up, you clean up. And where does that debris go? Probably just out into the fields around you. They're, they're, They're lost. So the likelihood of them surviving is rare. But yes, there have been finds where we can say, yeah, people were firing pots here, but it's not easily recognisable. 
makes you wonder how they timed their practice of firing. How did you measure time at that point, apart from looking at the sun, if, if it's out, uh, you know? Well, more important than time is the temperature. So uh, mm. what, what we often talk about prehistoric pottery firings being fast firings, in other words, measured over an hour or maybe two hours maximum compared to in a modern kiln where you're looking at sort of half a day or, or, or longer. But what's important is knowing that you've reached the temperature you need with that pot. And the only indicator for them would have been the colour. Because when you reach about seven or 800 degrees centigrade, your pot will glow orange. Now, in daylight, you can't actually see that. It's not bright enough to be seen in daylight. So if you're firing inside a hut, yes, you can see that you've reached temperature. If you're firing outside, I suspect they would have fired at night, which would have been quite a spectacular thing. You would have seen the pots glow. That would have been a very special moment. Well, that's really interesting because that leads us on to all those questions that experimental archaeologists try to ask. <laughs> and we now need, I suppose, to define what experimental archaeology is. So how would you describe it for people who haven't come across this term, Graham? What you're trying to do within experimental archaeology is you're trying to look at the archaeological evidence that's been unearthed and to work out how things were used, how they were made, how they have rotted away over the years. You're trying to achieve a result which corresponds with what you're seeing in the ground. So in the case of pot making, yeah, starting with a little sherd of pottery, you're looking at first the nature of the clay, how much grit is in it, what kind of materials have been added to that clay, why have they added them to these materials. You're then trying to work out what sort of firing temperature they were using. And th that comes from things like the friability of the pot, is it, how solid it is. And then you're going to test those results that you think you've got, go back to the start again, look at it, does this correspond? If not, I start again. So what you're doing is you're trying to achieve the same results. And we talk about experimental archaeology, but we also talk about experiential archaeology, which is a slightly different thing, which is really just trying to get to the way that people lived and the way people did things. So Sarah and I do a fair bit of both, really. We make replicas, we carry out experiments, we make things for often for students who are doing their PhDs to, to cook in or to try things out. So all the time we're involved in various archaeological experiments. And the most wonderful thing is when you hit on that eureka moment, when suddenly you go, that's how they did it. Right. Got it. And that's that's the prize. <laughs> yes. Well, I should ask your daughter about that. What, what's it like working with your father, you know, as a team of modern day potters to sort of as time travellers in a way, time travelling engineers to sort of go back and, and work on these little projects to try and understand how it was all done. I think it's fascinating because every day there's something new and uh, and you're learning something new. And sometimes the things that you're discovering, those aha moments aren't, it's not huge, it's not life changing, but you'll kind of press a tool into the clay and as you pull it out, it'll create a mark that is identical to the one that you're seeing on another pot. And there's just something wonderful to think that, you know, a couple thousand years ago, someone was sitting there doing that same process that you've just done. And it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like um, just having a moment with that person from thousands of years ago, which I think is quite a beautiful thing. And in terms of working with dad, it feels kind of right. I suspect that these skills were passed down generation to generation 
So to have come into the business and to have the opportunity to gain skills from dad, it just somehow feels kind of like the right way, the way it should be done. And yeah, yeah. it's interesting because you're learning from your father your, yeah. um, and the genes are being passed on, so yeah. to speak. But and I've got also... a son and we pass um, quite a lot of knowledge on to him. So it, it's kind of, yeah, it's three generations all kind of uh, learning together. It's nice. And yet you have this connection with people who are not related to you or who may yeah. be distantly thousands of years ago as well, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah. And it is, it, it is so wonderful. A fingerprint, a tool mark, anything that speaks of that person who first made it, I think is is the most interesting and wonderful part of history. I just think it's that human connection. It's amazing. So it's like reverse engineering effectively. Yeah. Um, but with clay. Are there any other materials that you can use or that have been used in the past to make vessels? If you go over to Scandinavia, for instance, soapstone is is one of the sort of big sort of things that people use for vessels. And, it, you know, it's thought that possibly people were using sort of leather bags and things like that. You know, you can, you can cook in organic materials, which is a really weird idea, but you can actually uh, sort of boil water in a leather bag over a fire for, to a certain degree. But of course, the advantage of pottery is that it will take these stresses and strains of being cooked in, etc. And it's a material which is readily available. In terms of human evolution, it's a really late comer because the earliest ceramic objects we know of anywhere in the world come at 28,000 years ago, which, which in the evolution of, of our species is very late. But it, it is it is something which once people have got hold of it and started to use it, they can do time and time again. And so, of course, one of the earliest uses of clay to make vessels is actually in Japan and China. And, of course, that relates to the current exhibition at Stonehenge. Yes, we'll get on to the um, Stonehenge and Prehistoric Japan exhibition shortly. But um, how long have you both been working together in ceramics and especially in relation to this experimental archaeology? Well, I started with the business seven years ago, so that's how long I've been involved in it. But, Dad, you've been... I, I don't even know how long well, you've been doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did a degree just after Julius Caesar got to um, it. Was, uh, uh, I did a ceramics degree back in the 1970s, and I've been a working potter ever since. So, so Sarah grew up in an environment of us running potteries forever. I started off as a 20th century potter making cups, saucers and teapots and all that sort of thing, handmade. But I was always fascinated by the ancient technology that I was using because while I was making modern pots, I was aware that the process that I was going through dated back thousands of years. And I used to sort of trot off and find uh, archaeological reports and uh, papers and sort of try and glean from them information about the processes. But so often back in those days... They'd been written by archaeologists sort of over the past 30 or 40 years who would often expound their own theory of how things were made without ever having talked to a potter. So I would often find myself reading this paper and just sitting going, no, 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 that's not how it happened. <laughs> and I think that sort of spurred me on to start doing the experiments. And we ran a pottery in Southern Africa for 20 years in, in Lesotho in Southern Africa. And out there, there were people still making pots completely by hand and open firing them in the same way that people would have done here in the Neolithic. So I got to see 
these processes at work. And once we came back to the UK in 2000 and set up our pottery workshop here, that started to become the main sort of focus of my work. I started doing a lot of heritage work and really it snowballed from there. And we're in the position we are now. I don't make any modern pots at all. We make only ancient pots. (laughs) Is it possible then that in thousands of years... If someone has bought one of your pots, one of your replicas, and then it finds its way, I don't know, into the ground and it's dug up, that they might think it's ancient or <laughs> they go, oh, no, that's, that, that belongs to Graham, that one. It's got the clear hallmarks of a, of a replica. There is, there is that danger. We do stamp pots. We do stamp our, our, our workshop name on there. We stamp potted history on the bottom of them, sort of as an insurance against uh, being accused of making fakes or, uh, or of this sort of thing happening. But of course, um, archaeological finds are often a small fragment. So once our pots are broken up and fragmentary, it might become difficult. But of course, archaeologically speaking, pots that are out of context, in other words, they're not within an archaeological dig where you know that you are digging a Neolithic house. Bits of pots and things found out of context in plough soil and things are difficult. They're not really worth an awful lot in terms of the information they can give you. So I'm, I'm fairly safe. And of course, you can carbon actually... Carbon dating do- as well. <laughs> well, there's carbon dating, but you, there's also thermoluminescence, which is the, a, method, a rather expensive method of dating pottery, but um, maybe come cheaper in the future. You never know. <laughs> Moving on to the objects that you've worked on that are on display at Stonehenge, these replicas... Can people see your work at the visitor centre? They can. Um, in the replica Neolithic houses, there's a, quite a lot of our work, and the, the, the large grooveware pots in there, and and pots going right the way through. In the museum, you will see a few of our replicas. Yeah, I think the uh, I think the ceramic object, for instance, is in the museum at Stonehenge, and as are replica beakers and things. So uh, sometimes, if you're looking around a museum and you see a pot that looks a little bit too good to be true, it's possibly a potted history pot. <laughs> right, okay. And Melanie, is it is it well explained as well with displays and signage that visitors are, are looking at a replica? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, in all of these sort of object captions and the labels that go alongside the exhibitions, we always acknowledge when it is a replica. Are they sort of dressed in a way that would make them look like they're from thousands of years ago or do they look like they are freshly fired from thousands of years ago well uh, we we always make well i say we always we almost always make pots which we say quite clearly are as new so they look as if they've just been made as of course they have just occasionally a museum will ask us to age something but it's not a process i like doing very much the oldborn heritage center there's a fa- very famous little Bronze Age cup called the Oldbourne Cup. Not that far from Stonehenge. That's North Wiltshire, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's right. And they did want me to make one copy of the pot as it would have looked when it knew and a copy of the pot as it looks now. But it's not it's not our forte. So almost everything we make is as it would have looked when the original makers made it. How do visitors at Stonehenge interact with your pots apart from looking at them? Can they also handle them? Can they take them off shelves or how does it work? 
I think occasionally they have volunteers in the houses who will sort of allow visitors to handle things. Melanie would probably be able to help me with that. Yeah, I mean, we do we do have, we have the Neolithic houses are often dressed, which means that the spaces are filled with all of our replicas. And if there is a volunteer around, then um, they're absolutely made available for visitors to touch and hold and handle. And it's a really part of, important part of the experience. I think visitors are often curious about the weight and just the texture and the way that the objects feel. And it's just that one more puzzle piece to help us try to sort of bring the past to life and let people envision what life might have been like for the people living in those houses and living in that time. Well, exactly. Regarding that, how would one interact with these objects if one was living at the time thousands of years ago in a Neolithic house? Do we know what these objects would have carried? Uh, well, from as far as I know, I think they might have been used for, for storage, but also certainly for cooking. And I know, Graham, having said that, his pots that he's made for us appear as new. Quite a few of them, after a number of years in our Neolithic houses, probably no longer look new. So that's an experiment in itself to see how they weather and how they age and how they fare over time, because our volunteer group is a very active one. And they you know, they do sometimes experiment and have attempted to cook things and use the pots by the fire as well. Do we know what they might have eaten in these objects? I think the temptation is always to say porridge. Um, (laughs) 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 There tends to be a a sort of school of thought that always goes, oh, they ate a lot of porridge. There has been residue analysis done on various pots. We do know, uh, you know, I mentioned brewing before, there is a certain amount of evidence now, certainly coming from Orkney and that sort of area that groupware pottery, a fair bit of it was used for brewing, but certainly for a lot of it was would have been used for storage. The ones that are cooked in, there we get more information, of course, because once you cook fish or meat or stuff like that, a little bit of that soaks into these pots. These are these are very. Uh, we've talked about the, the firing temperatures. It leaves the pots quite porous, so the residues of the things that are cooked into them do soak into the surface, and those leave signatures. And there's been more and more science done in recent years of being able to analyse the signatures of these various things. And in fact, we talked about experimental archaeology before. Well, quite a lot of the replica pots that we've made for certainly for PhD students have been used to cook things in and then try to get the information about what does get absorbed from each foodstuff, how much of that might survive in the ground over 5,000 years, and thereby get sort of a, a set of rules by which you can estimate what's being cooked. But certainly, yes, meat, fish, uh, cheese, we believe. There's certainly evidence for milk lipids in these things, And yet there is still a body opinion that says that prior to the Bronze Age, most people were probably still lactose intolerant. So there are questions to be answered. But we do we do do experiments. We do experiments uh, in in cooking techniques and uh, and just seeing how the pots behave within the sort of environment of the hearth. And quite often we're mentioning uh, what we should never mention in prehistory. Mentioning the Romans, uh, we have a replica Roman kiln at Vindolanda that we fire on a fairly regular basis. And almost invariably, when we fire that, we will cook ourselves a Roman meal in a, cook- a Roman cooking pot next to the hearth, so that we try and do things as uh, as close to the original as possible. Sarah, do you think it's possible to cook a modern meal using your company's uh, replica pots? Well, it's usually me that does do the cooking because I quite enjoy it. So, yeah, I have cooked quite a few things. I must admit we have cooked some fairly modern 
items in our replica pots. And they are very, very effective and uh, very tasty. It gives a quite a unique flavor to food when you are cooking it in a ceramic pot because you get that smoky flavor coming through. And it's not something that you would get. You just can't replicate that taste if you took the same ingredients and cooked on a modern oven, it just you just don't get the same flavour. It's a really interesting way of figuring out what stresses the pots can take and um, how efficient they are. And they are surprisingly efficient, I have to say. You need a, a small amount of fuel to be able to get them to a boil and to get a really good meal cooked. So I highly recommend it. <laughs> yes, I think that's a good idea for the catering team for yeah. the solstices, isn't it? So, you know, if you're up all night waiting for the sunrise, then um, it's, it'd be good to have a, you know, a solstice burger or yeah. something, <laughs> you know, made using these uh, replica pieces of pottery. That'd yeah. be fantastic. Okay, well, we talked earlier about this uh, Japan exhibition, Stonehenge in Prehistoric Japan, which is currently on, if you're listening, in early 2023, of course. This explores the commonalities between Stone Age Britain and Stone Age Japan. So, Graham and Sarah, how have you helped contribute to this particular exhibition? We were asked if we would make some ceramic replicas uh, for a start. I was asked if I would make a Jomon flame pot, which I'll elaborate on in a minute. And uh, Sarah was asked if she would make some of the little figurines that are known as dogu. Really, for me, the flame pot was, was a gift because ever since I was a student and I talked about doing research back then in the 1970s and I saw these darn things in museums and I've been looking at them and thinking, I really should have a go at making one of those. But they are so elaborate that... It had always been shelved. It's always been shelved. So um, it was Susan Greeny from uh, English Heritage that phoned me and said, would I be interested in making one? And the answer was very definitely yes. Just to elaborate on the the flame pot, they are apparently a cooking pot. They are found from around about 5,000 years ago in Japan within the ruins of the houses set into the corner of the hearth and they appear to have been used for cooking because there are cooking residues in them. And it looks like they were cooking things like fish and meat in, in these pots. But they are so heavily decorated. I said before that it often takes me longer to decorate a pot than it takes me to make one. Well, to make and decorate one of these pots takes me around about three days, which is just unbelievable. They have this elaborate sculptural rim, which is mind-bendingly complex in the way it's arranged. And really, trying to describe them just doesn't do justice. You really need to go along. You've got to go along to Stonehenge and have a look at one of these pots, because they are amazing. But yeah, this was an opportunity to do it. But the idea that you spend three or four days making a pot, and then you cook your stew in it, is just just mind-blowing. Yeah, that's really laying the table, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. For a feast. But for people who aren't able to see the pictures or go and visit Stonehenge, if we were to describe these Japanese flame pots, they have a rim where effectively flames are coming out of, it looks like. They're called flame pots. The complexity of the sculpture on the rim is a little bit like um, uh, half a dozen octopuses wrestling around the rim of the pot, you might say, because they have these elaborate sort of extrusions almost coming out from the rim. and winding round one another and yes they do look a little bit flame-like there is a sort of row on each pot there is a row of little sort of flames rising up but then 
this other sculptural work that goes on above them is just amazing, absolutely astonishing. So we've got this exhibition. We will be demonstrating there. I'll, I'll be demonstrating making one of these pots over the forthcoming half term. And Sarah will be demonstrating making the Dogu figurines and giving people an opportunity to have a go at making one of those. I won't be giving you a chance to make a flame pot uh, unless you've got three or four days to spend standing there. Well, exactly. And one of your apprentices will probably take twice as long anyway. So that, and, and at that point, half term will be over and it's back to school. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about these dogu, though. We covered it in a previous episode, but Sarah, you've been making these dogu. How do you describe those? What are they made out of? I mean, they vary so greatly, but um, so they're little ceramic figures, but we do get some quite large ones. There's one that stands about 50 centimetres tall. But the main ones that we're looking at Stonehenge, they're cruciform in shape. They're generally considered to be female. They have a face of some kind, usually with an open mouth, some people describe it as singing, some say screaming, some say shouting. I think it depends on you as a person, how you interpret that. They then often have two, I suppose, balls of clay that are interpreted as breasts and then one around the middle, maybe a stomach, something like that. And they're always decorated with some kind of cord decoration, quite elaborately decorated often decorated on the back as well as the front. They appear to often have holes in the ears or at, at other places. Um, there's Some of them have holes that appear to go from the base of them right the way up to where the throat would be, but there's no apparent purpose for this hole other than the artist felt that it was important to have that there. So they've been interpreted sometimes as being some form of medical doll perhaps, or some form of spiritual doll that was used in a ceremony. Many of them don't have their heads or have limbs missing because they appear to have been deliberately broken. But they vary so vastly that it's very hard to describe all of them in one go. But again, like the flame pots, it's the level of detail and precision and care and time that goes into making each one that is pretty mind-blowing because the decoration often covers the whole of the piece, which is a very time-consuming thing and often decorated in areas that you would have to pick it up and really look at it to see the decoration. So for some of us, we might consider that to be unnecessary to go to that level of decoration. But they're beautiful. They sound like um, fertility symbols or something. Potentially, yeah. Or dolls uh, for toys? Yeah, I, th I think this is one of the, the suggestions. I think there's so so many of them. To date, I believe there's around 18,000 of them found. And they're found in middens, they're found in homes, and they're found as part of burials. So there's no clear use for them. I don't, I don't think that we could clearly say this is exactly what they're used for. But if we think of our, in the modern sense, how we might use an object. So I might use a bowl to put my fruit into, whereas someone else might use that same bowl to display something that, that, that they love. Or we use things in different ways as different people. And it's possible that these dogus were used in that same way, where we weren't all using them. These people weren't all using them exactly the same way. But um, they definitely must that there definitely must be a real importance. There must have been a real cultural importance to these objects because 18,000 is a very high number. Considering in the UK, I think we have 
one little figure, the uh, the Orkney Venus, and that was in the, it's found in Scotland, and that was from around six thousand years ago, I think. So here in, in the United Kingdom, you've got one, and then in Japan, you've got eighteen thousand of these objects. It's pretty special. Um, it's really interesting. Anyone who knows Japanese culture might be thinking, well, it sounds a little bit like ancient collectibles or something. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> well, the, the, the meaning of dogu um, is a, a spirit doll or earth spirit. So that's what it actually means in, in translated from Japanese. So I think there is considered to be a, some form of con- a spiritual connection with them. But unfortunately, like so many things, like many of the the items at Stonehenge, we don't know. We, we want to know, but we just won't know for sure ever, I don't imagine. It's always good to wonder and ask the question. Oh, though, it is. It? It's fascinating. And that's one thing about Dogu. They will certainly get you asking questions. That's for sure. Because I think they could be a charm as well, couldn't they? They could potentially be a charm. And some of them, the holes do seem to sit where you might be able to suspend them from a necklace, perhaps, or as a part of jewellery, because you do get quite small ones. Again, ones that would fit in the palm of your hands. And then you get other ones that are clearly made for display. There's a seated dogu that was found, and they believe it was sitting in the rafters of a hut, so that when you walked into the hut, she would be facing you directly. So as if she was maybe greeting the person coming in, or perhaps she was there to protect the household, to check whoever was coming into the house. So yeah, so many different possibilities for these dogu, and yeah, so much variety. Yeah, reminiscent of a a wind chime, I suppose. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's very interesting. Okay, well, if you want to find out more about the Stonehenge and Prehistoric Japan exhibition, you can just go to the English Heritage website, or you can listen to one of our previous podcasts about this. It's episode 182. So for anyone listening just after this episode has been released, which is um, February in 2023, you're running this event at Stonehenge that highlights this use of replicas and experimental archaeology as ways to engage with the public, as we've just been discussing. But... How do these techniques help us to understand Stonehenge and its people? Does Melanie want to come in on that? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think all of the opportunity to sort of touch and handle and learn more about the techniques that people were using is always going to shine quite nice light on what life might have been long ago. And with the entire Circles of Stone exhibition, what we're aiming to do is allow people to learn a little bit more about life in prehistoric Japan and to do that through the artifacts and things like the flame pot replica and the dogu. But then, you know, find ways to compare and contrast that with what we know about our own lives and what we know about Stonehenge and obviously experience that through the Neolithic houses. So hopefully it just really makes for an engaging experience where people walk away with a few questions answered, but actually we want to generate conversation and hopefully it, there's always more questions to be answered and more mysteries to be solved when it comes to Stonehenge. Yes, because we should probably say that there hasn't been discovered at Stonehenge any dogu type things or these flame pots. This is distinctly Japanese technology. That's right. We don't have any figurines similar to the dogu. And although we do have beautifully decorated groovedware pottery that Graham's spoken about, we don't have anything similar to the, these really elaborate flame pots. So two really different cultures on opposite sides of the world, but they do have something in common, and that's clay and the yeah. fact that they made things. And that's an important part of the way the human story has developed over the centuries and over thousands of years. 
So as we conclude our discussion on potted history at Stonehenge, what, what's the future of research into this field? What other questions need to be answered, Melanie? Lots, that's I suppose. Big, that is, that's a big question that in itself, yeah. I mean, I think as our conversation today has shown, there are there's endless questions. And what's great about that is that there's just endless opportunity for us to keep experimenting and to keep trying new things and hopefully to keep uh, enjoying all of the sort of work that Graham does as well. I suppose as science evolves as well and the level of detail into some of these residues that have been left behind improves, then more can be gleaned from the bottoms of these pots and hopefully that will give us more insight into how people lived. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, technology is always changing and even the things we know about Stonehenge now and everyday life are, are different from what we knew even you know 10 years ago when the visitor centre opened. So there is always opportunity to be finding out new things and uh, hopefully adding that to the way that we talk about Stonehenge at that visitor centre. And Graham and Sarah, any final thoughts from you about um, where your research, you know, as experimental archaeologists making replicas for people to display in their homes, uh, where can this go? Well, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, we make uh, replicas for not only archaeologists. I mean, people do buy them as, as individuals for their own homes. But in terms of um, what could be learned, one of the issues with archaeology is every time a new hole is dug, a new question gets presented <laughs> because often these things, while they do answer questions, they also present you with a whole load more questions that you didn't know needed answering. In a way, this is what happens when you start to experiment archaeologically. I mean, long long projects that we've worked on, like the, like the pots from Stonehenge and things like that, you start off and you look at the project and you think, oh yeah, no, I know where I'm going with this. And you start making pots. And as you're making them, and this was certainly the case with making the Jomon flame pot, you start making the pot. And as you're making it, you go, ah, now I hadn't thought of asking that question. We had the opportunity in making these replicas for this current Stonehenge exhibition, we had the opportunity to go to the British Museum and look at some of the original flame pots and dogu figures that are on display there. And um, I decided before I went down there to have a go at making one of the pots so that I could find more questions to ask when I got there. And that's the way it works. You, You think you have an idea, you go for it, another question presents itself, and you keep cycling round. And I don't think there's ever an end in sight to experimental archaeology or to the questions that we can possibly ask. More questions will present themselves as time goes on. Yes, and uh, you'll be passing those questions to Sarah. Um, <laughs> yeah, <yes>. absolutely. <laughs> A final thought from you, Sarah, as the person who's going to be sort of continuing the job, what are you hoping to discover? I, th- I think it's partly it's carrying on the tradition of being able to make these objects which I think is so important because it does tell us a lot about what the people in the past were doing, how they were making things, how they were thinking things through and it allows us to, um, as we said earlier, realise how sophisticated people were and for me it's that idea of continuing that tradition so that we can always remind ourselves about the the human part of history certainly when i was at school the history teacher was obsessed with dates and dates are obviously very important but it is how were these people connected to who i am now 
how have these people helped me and the next generations to come? How, how have they helped us to build to where we are? And I think that for me is the most exciting and interesting bit is to learn more about these connections, our roots and where we came from. So yeah, I think that's probably for me the most important and interesting and exciting part of what we do. So essentially with every fingerprint that you leave on a piece of clay as you're doing these experiments and trying to work your way through the fabrication processes of the past, you're really getting in, in touch with your, your humanity, really. Yeah, that's what I always think. And when you, when you find that evidence of that other person, is it's that humanity, it's that human connection. And you know that that person is long gone, but they've left this, it's almost like a, a snapshot of time has been left on a piece of clay that I now get to hold and I get to you know, share in that moment that that person had thousands of years ago. I think it's a really special thing. Well, I encourage people then to go along to the Stonehenge in Prehistoric Japan exhibition, have a look at the displays, and if you're able to, head into the Neolithic house, and hopefully at that time during your visit, you'll be able to handle these replica objects and, and feel as close to the past as Graham and Sarah get to do through their clay time-travelling job. <laughs> Thanks all of you for talking to us. It's been a really interesting chat. It's been a pleasure. Yep. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. Cheers. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be exploring how a temple to a Persian god came to be built by Hadrian's Wall during the Roman occupation of Britain. They are intended to look like a cave, so they were probably quite dark with very careful use of natural or artificial light to create some kind of secluded, secret atmosphere. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>